evening, North Georgia. It's Ralph Taylor, and it's Monday night, and it's 6 o'clock, and you know what that means. It's time for another edition of the Chattahoochee Folk Hour right here on 89.1 WBCX, where there's nothing but the good stuff. I'm glad you're visiting with me today to get your week off to a great start. And folks, as always, we give you the very best in bluegrass music. And tonight, uh, I'm excited for this show because we're going to be introducing you to a fantastic group that I had the privilege of meeting and hearing up at Bear on the Square last weekend. It's a group called Front Country, uh, and they're out of uh, out of California down in the San Francisco Bay area. And believe it or not, they know bluegrass pretty well out there, and I think you're really going to enjoy what they offered, that really strong, progressive bluegrass sound. If you like uh, Peter Rowan, if you like David Grisman, you're going to love Front Country. And then uh, my, my buddy Grant Searcy, a nationally recognized folk artist who is right here in Dahlonega, Georgia, is going to stop by, and he has got a wonderful story to tell. So tonight we're going to have music and we're going to have art for you. So it's going to be a great show. So as always, I hope you find that favorite chair, settle in, pour yourself a nice tall glass of sweet tea, and enjoy the next 60 minutes right here on the Chattahoochee Folk Hour. Let's go ahead and get started with a few tunes from Front Country. I'm going to be featuring their music throughout the show, and this is from their release called Sake of the Sound, and I think you're going to love them just like I do. Okay, folks, let's get going. Here we go with one kind word from Front Country. Heart that beats and longs 
Salt and Nails from an awesome band out of uh, the Bay Area of California, Front Country. We're going to be digging their music all hour, and now it's time to get on. It's time to get on the gospel train with their version of that classic tune. Here we go.
Front Country right here on the Chattahoochee Folk Hour. Hi, my name is Bobby Killer Knup, and you're listening to the Chattahoochee Folk Hour with my friend Ralph Taylor on 89.1 WBCX, the voice of Bernal University. Well, thank you, Bobby. I know you're listening, and I'm glad you're tuning in, too. And, uh, folks, I'm glad you're joining me, too. Of course, the Folk Hour has so many great things going on with it. Uh-oh, that's the doorbell. Let me see who's coming in. Is that my buddy Grant? Grant, is that you? It sure is. Thanks for having me, Ralph. Grant Searcy, welcome to the Chattahoochee Folk Hour. I appreciate it. It's really a, it's an honor to be here. Oh, Grant, well, it's an honor for me to have you. I, I tell you, Grant Searcy is a nationally recognized folk artist out of Dahlonega, Georgia. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the expression uh, of artists in music. Well, of course, there's another fantastic way of expressing art, and that is through art. <laughs> and, uh, Grant, tell us about, about your art. You, you, you do some wonderful work. Let, let's hear what you, what you have to say about it. Yeah, you know, I really have a, a big variety of styles that I work in. A lot of it, a good deal of it, would be considered folk art uh-huh. by by many people. I mean, for example, a, a cute little painting of a donkey is one of my best sellers, and little pigs and stuff. But you know, that's that's my lighthearted stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. I go I go deeper with like the show that's over at the Quinlan right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's called Riders on the Storm. It's about about where like the light and the dark collide and you know stuff like that is is more what led me to become an artist in the first place yeah yeah i get to paint the whimsical stuff now because i've really i've gotten through a lot of really heavy stuff in my life a lot of uh difficult health problems and here i am on the other side of things and i'm happy I, I've I've kind of earned my way to be able to create the lighthearted. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because I've been been in the dark. I know. I know you have. Well, I love what you say on your website about uh, about your uh, your work. You say it's a melting pot of Mother Nature, science fiction, comic books, steampunk, anime, and even. Graffiti and street art found in more urban settings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I've lived in a variety of places, vastly different areas. Yeah. As a result, those those each of those places influenced me in its own way. Now I combine, I pull from all those things and combine them in a, in a way that only I can with my unique life experience. You yeah. know, we all have our yeah. thing. Tell us a little bit about as we get started. We're going to dig deep into the to Grant's journey, and for the our listening audience, I got to tell you, Grant has a a beautiful story, and and that's why I'm so excited for him to be on the folk hour. But let's let's start a little bit about do your best you can to give him some mental images. Yeah, I I will do my best. It's funny because my best way of communicating is not always through words; it's through colors and brush strokes and drawings. It's a universal language, but I'm going to do my best. Yeah. I'm, I'm a pretty good talker also. Oh, I, I, absolutely. So I guess uh, right now what I'm painting is a lot of, I do a lot of little animal characters and, you know, it's, I find personalities of the people that I see in everyday life and all those different 
characters that we come across, I translate them. And a, a lot of people kind of look like weird little animals to me, or some people look like a certain kind of bird, or, you know, sometimes it's not a, the most flattering. You might want to say, oh, I think I look more like a fox if I'm going to have to be an animal or, you know, a bear or something. But sometimes people look like, you know, like a little weasel or a Well, well Grant, some people have accused me of looking like an animal that I cannot mention on the air, I tell you. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, Closer no. to that donkey. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, what about the color choices? Now, yeah. for the folks at home, it's, it's it, they're bright, they're, they're comforting colors. Uh, tell tell us a little bit about the the color yeah. features of your of your work. The brighter the better. I use a lot of complementary colors, so you know ultimately, you can take a photograph if you want realism. And what I try to do is just create something that is almost an idealized way in my mind of of what it is that I want to showcase. But ultimately, every little entity that I create has a little personality. When you hang them all up on the wall, you feel like you're surrounded by a group of friends or this whole cast. Like you're, you just look at them and, and you know that one of them's thinking, oh man, I think I just got away with something or <laughs> I'm really bummed about this or I was up all night and I'm tired. They're all, they all have their little stories to tell. And, and you can kind of see those stories. That's the fascinating thing about how you communicate in your art grant. You can look at one of your paintings and you can kind of tell a little bit of the storyline just by one look at your painting. Do you realize that? Yeah, you know, and it gets frustrating because there's just not enough hours in the day. Every everybody's <laughs> like, you need to, you you could do kids books, and these need to be animated. You should work for Disney, or hey, believe me, I'm working on it every day. <laughs> I've I've really I've been painting. I'm 39 years old now. I sold my first piece when I was 20 years old. I've been working every day to go full-time. It's just been in the last few years that this has been able to support my life 100%. Yeah. And now I make a comfortable living at it. But there's always room for growth. Well, it, 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 there is. And, and, and your artwork has already carried you across the country. I was <clears> reading <throat> on your website, you know, we're featuring a band out of California, but uh your your paintings were out in the city of is it Hermosa Beach, California? Yeah, yeah. In, tell, me, tell me about that project. I lived in in LA for about eight years. I would always do this art show there um, in South Bay in the city of Hermosa Beach called uh, the Hermosa Beach Art Walk. One year they asked me they they started my my work started to get noticed and they I did this really cool painting of some jellyfish, some jellies. And they said, we would like to feature this piece as our featured art walk, artwork for the Hermosa Beach Art Walk for 2011. Mm-hmm. So it's to this day, it's still on the, some of the welcome banners up and down Pier Avenue in Hermosa Beach, California. Uh-huh. And they look great. It's really, it's really flattering to, I don't know, it's, it's a neat feeling. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and you mentioned something about, about Lucasfilms. And uh, getting connected to your artwork. Tell yeah. us about that. Yeah. In 2007, I did the New York Art Expo. It's one of the largest art shows in the world. I had all my work on display, and I was approached by a company out of Burbank, California, that has the licensing rights to a few different entities like Lucasfilm, which is now Disney, all kinds of stuff. And they said, based on your style of work, we think 
you would do a really neat version of a Yoda or some of the characters from Star Wars. Would you be interested in doing that? And my jaw just hit the floor. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah. Are you asking me to do like legal versions, copyright okay versions of stuff I grew up with? Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely okay with that. So I did uh, three, two paintings initially, one of Yoda, one of R2-D2. Anybody can paint the Star Wars characters. That's not what they were looking for. They wanted something that maybe could have happened in the movies but didn't. Mm-hmm. So... I came up with these elaborate storylines about things that that I would have liked to have seen, but I didn't, and that's what I painted. Right. And as a result, they they accepted all of them. I ended up doing a third one, and that just meant I was told, I don't have any, I can't prove it, but they said how it works is George Lucas gets to hold and look at the originals, gets first rights and refusals to buy them. He rarely buys them because the guy has everything on the planet. Yeah. Once once he says... um, yeah, okay. Then I sign a little contract. They distribute them. They do prints, uh, mm-hmm. really high-end prints, and they distribute them worldwide. I maintain the rights to the sell the original. That was that was a really fun thing. It gave me a lot of street cred. Oh gosh, yes. What a what a great honor. Now now let's talk about. You have uh, an exhibit over here next door at the Quinlan Art Center. That's correct. Why don't we tell folks about that? Because I know. Uh, well, first of all, let's go ahead and. And give folks your website address so folks can look you up. Oh, I think that's very important. Yeah. What, what yeah. is your address? Yeah. All right. It's grantcrc.com. So it's just my name. And, and go, go ahead and spell it for folks. So yeah, absolutely. Grant, G-R-A-N-T, Searcy, S as in Sam, E-A-R-C-E-Y.com. Gotcha. Everyone always forgets that last E. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's all yeah. good. Oh, man. So so you, you can go to Grant's website, even if uh, during the interview, if you want to kind of see some of his artwork. But if you want to go visit it locally, you can go to the Quinlan, and, and Grant's going to tell us about that exhibit now. Here in Gainesville at the Quinlan is a show that's up until June 6th. It's called Riders on the Storm. The, the subline is where light and dark collide. The premise of the show is that we all have a choice. We can go... We can be happy, we can be sad, we can be joyous, we can be depressed, we can be angry. You get, you get the point. So I depicted, I have nine paintings. There's one in the middle that starts off the show where the dark forces and the light forces are facing each other. I sound like Star Wars here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's more profound than that, I, I promise. And then everything on the left side of the room is all the light. And for example, if there's a 30 by 40 inch painting of the light, there's a 30 by 40 inch painting that's the exact polar opposite of that on the other side of it. So there's nine pieces total. Mm -hmm. That is a great example of a show that I did just for me. I think people like it, but really that's a bonus at this point. Yeah. That was painting for art's sake. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, folks could also see your artwork at your gallery up in Dahlonega. Yeah. And why don't you tell folks where that's located? Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, in Dahlonega, it's called Canvas and Cork. It is a wine tasting room slash art gallery. It's a really unique place. There's four studio artists there. I'm one of them. And that's where that's my open to the public retail location. I have my private studio on the square, but that's just where I get messy and 
lock uh-huh. the door and turn up my music real loud and yeah. do my thing.
Front Country right here on the Chattahoochee Folk Hour. I'm Ralph Taylor, and I'm your host for this hour, and I'm so glad you're joining me tonight. Uh, we have Grant Searcy, a nationally known artist here in the studio, and we're going to dig deeper. We learned a little bit about Grant in the first half hour about his art, and uh, Grant has a beautiful life story. Now let's talk about how your journey led you to your artwork. Yeah, Ralph, you know, I was always that I knew really early that I was an artist. I was that kid in school. I was the art kid. I mean, I, I, I did everything else too, but it was it came a little bit easier than it did for some other people for me. And I went through, um, I had a very normal childhood. I grew up in Nebraska. So here I am in a very, very small town in Nebraska, high school art classes and everything I always I did all that and then I went to the University of Nebraska I started uh, I started college as a studio art major and then I got really scared that I wouldn't be able to make a living doing that as a result I shifted gears and I have a wonderful degree in psychology art history and hablo perfecto español but I, I guess uh, I let fear kind of take over, and I thought, you know, I'll never be a good enough artist to be able to make a living out of it. At this point, I'm early 20s. You know, before that, I guess uh, I kind of skipped a major part. My senior year in high school, I was diagnosed with I, – I was first of all, I was the captain of the swim team. Wow. Health issues were never even on my radar. And one day after school – I got really tired when I was playing basketball with some friends. It was a warm April afternoon. I ended up going to the hospital. Um, I'm skipping over a lot of little details, but I went to ER, and I couldn't even walk. I had lost strength by that point. They ended up having to shock me with the paddles because I had an elevated heart rate. It was just like 150 beats per minute just going crazy. And You know, this was all a really just out of the blue. Two weeks later... I came out of the hospital with an internal defibrillator and the news that I had severe idiopathic cardiomyopathy. Mm. My right ventricle was severely dilated. The doctors weren't 100% sure what had caused this. They said, okay, most likely this was viral. When your body fought off this virus, it left scar tissue. Scar tissue in the heart muscle is a lot different than scar tissue somewhere else. Mm. And my heart was actually dilated, dilated like a water balloon, and it was, it was progressive. So here I am at 18, and I've got uh, a very weakened heart muscle that seemed to have come on suddenly. Looking back, it probably progressed over a few months, and... That's why I got third place instead of first place in that last swim meet, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. But anyway, wow. I had an internal defibrillator Im- implanted at age 18. Mm. I had one month of high school left, and I was not able to go back. I tried. So college was questionable. Um, just walking up a flight of stairs was questionable. I was always constantly out of breath. This internal defibrillator, this is 1994. This was a brand new 
concept in 1994. Mm-hmm. You would, nobody had heard of these things. And it was the size of a man's wallet. And here I am, 150 pounds, very lean. So it's not like a, now they're the size of an Oreo cookie or smaller, and they put them in the chest. It was in my abdomen, and all these... And, and surgically, you're you're hardwired. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. All this is under under the skin, under the fat, under the muscle, and wired directly onto the pericardium and into your uh, into the right ventricle. I, I believe it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. I haven't had one now for ten years, but we'll get to that. Mm. So that that would the purpose of that was it was a very smart little device. It was like a pacemaker. Plus, it would detect arrhythmias, in my case, ventricular tachycardia, which could happen out of the blue. There were no um, triggers. I could be sitting down reading a book, just walking, watching TV, whatever, and I would have what I called attacks. And an attack was an episode of ventricular tachycardia, racing heart, the defibrillator would then say, okay, I'm going to pace this guy. Pace, pace, pace. Oh, not doing anything. Let's try it one more time. And this is a matter of maybe 20, 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And at the end, if it failed to pace me into a regular rhythm, it would deliver a shock. The shock was the most horrible pain imaginable. And it comes from a device that's in you. You cannot escape it. It feels like getting kicked by a horse. It feels like there's a rod attached to your sternum through you and attached to the spine, and someone hits you square with a golf club. It just jolts you, and it's Powerful. It's horrible. Gosh. Yeah. So this could happen to me. Here I am. I'm 18, just graduated high school. And I'm having these attacks, and I can't get away from it. Uh, There's no escape. It's not like I could do drugs or, I mean, I guess I could, and I tried, you know, Mm -hmm. Valiums. Mm -hmm. That sedates you. But sleeping all day is no way to live. Yeah. And I really developed as an artist. I initially turned to this as a When I'm drawing, doodling, painting, whatever, it started off very, very simple. These weren't works of art in a gallery. These were me just scribbling and drawing my pain. I would draw myself as what I was feeling. And like a small panicked person in the corner, not, you know, and I would, I would depict this. And while I was doing it, I was calm. I was escaping. I was getting out of, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get shocked. I have this severe anxiety. Uh, and I would. I, had, I would have these horrible uh, panic attacks, just debilitating, and thinking, oh, my God, I can't get shocked. If I get shocked, it's going to be horrible. But I have no control of that. Yeah. So that kind of that worked. I got through that summer after high school. I went to college. Uh, believe me, I wasn't a partier. You know, I wasn't the, 
I, and I had a lot of friends that were, and in, in, I'm in my dorm on Friday night, drawing pictures or, or studying, Yeah, you know, and just trying not to die. And, and where were you in school? At, uh, in actually, I went, the first two years I went to the University of Nebraska Westland uh-huh. as a small private college. Uh-huh. And then I ended up my last two and a half years at the University of Nebraska, the larger school. Yeah, but, Cornhuskers. Yep, exactly. But given my medical condition, we thought it would be better to go to a smaller private sure. college where I could get, um, everything was a little easier. Right. As far as getting around, not the schoolwork. <laughs> <laughs> but because I wasn't out partying, I studied like crazy and I made the dean's list. <laughs> oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I, I end up, I finish. I finished college and developed a little bit as an artist, but I still didn't take it serious as a as a career. It was just my means of getting through life. Yeah. Yeah. It was the only way that I didn't just go crazy. So I'm constantly at doctor's appointments, experimental drugs with <laughs> legal ones. Yeah. With doctor supervision trying to help me. This is going on into the late 90s now, huh? Yeah, at this yeah. point, um, I graduated finally in 1999. So I've got I've lived five years with this severe illness, gotten shocked dozens and dozens of times. Each time, it saved my life. Mm. And you just you adapt. You learn to live with things like this. It's amazing what the human spirit is capable of when yeah. we're put to that test. Yeah. Basically, yeah. I graduated. I ended up moving to San Diego. Still had the the defibrillator. I was working in, kind of going back to school for graphic design. I had a nice job in a graphic design studio. I was got into yoga. Yeah, yoga. Wow, art, yoga, all these things that like completely relaxed my my mind body and soul yeah and i surrounded myself by other people that were into art i worked for a couple of surfers that were into yoga and they introduced me to it and you know i i found a place where i really thought i could live like this the rest of my life Mm -hmm. and i thought i believed that i was getting better in reality i was main i was doing very well for the severity of the illness that I had. Yeah. And finally, I got kind of fed up with, I, in, San Diego is not a huge city, but it's still a city. Mm-hmm. I got tired of waiting in line and traffic. And so in somewhere in there, my parents had moved to, my mom had relocated to New Mexico. I had visited there and I thought, this is a great place. It's up by Taos. Mm-hmm. Off the grid, there's a lot of earth ships. There's a lot of uh, just kind of do it your own way mentality. Yeah. A little bit of a escapism there. And I, I rented a little solar home that was uh, half in the, in the ground. And it, it, it was a really unique setting, but I wanted to just escape what I'd come to know as reality. And again, I mean, I'm producing more art than ever before at this point. Wow. I know something's going to change. Mm-hmm. I'm either going to die. Did art or, give you hope 
and peace? It was it was about the only thing that did. Wow. I spent a lot of time alone. Just it was such a weird period in my life. Yeah. I'm out here, you know, looking at out howling at the moon with the dogs. <laughs> then I'm in my little solar powered half underground house creating art all day. I worked at my parents' laundromat. You know, I wasn't I was kind of in a in a holding pattern. I could feel in my gut that something was coming. And finally, I was I still had this defibrillator. I started to get shocked uncontrollably. Four times in an hour for no rhyme or reason. It had malfunctioned. It oh my, my goodness. Essentially my heart had enlarged to the point that the defibrillator was no longer able to communicate properly with the sensors in the heart muscle to do its job. Mm. So it defaulted to these horrible, painful shocks. And I'd heard these horror stories years past about, you know, that means you're going to die. You don't get out of this. So here I am in ER in Little Taos, New Mexico. And they're, they're a wonderful place, but they're a small and small medical small community. medical community, right. yeah. Albuquerque is three hours drive away. They have a heart hospital, and so I'm like, oh, I got to get there. I got to get there. And the they agreed, so we got a helicopter emergency flight lined up, and the sun is. I'm up all night at this point. The sun's coming up, and I'm loaded on. I'm all strapped in and loaded onto this helicopter with. Two pilots, and earlier I joked with Ralph that that was the last time I wore headphones like these. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know the pilots are paramedics, and you know they they know what they're doing. Yeah, they talk to me. We, I, they knew that if if I got shocked or went into uh, an episode of VTAC, I probably wouldn't come out of it. So they did they did a great job. They kept calm. We got to Albuquerque. After, I don't know, I think like the next day, they, they said, all right, we're going to try to remove the old defibrillator and all these wires that have been connected to your heart. We're going to put in a new set. These are just worn out. They're 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And so I'm 28 at this point. I got them put in when I was 18. That didn't go so well. It's a very crude surgery because most people don't live long enough to get new defibrillator wires. Yeah. Wow. They haven't fine-tuned that one. And I I didn't I came pretty close to dying. Uh in in OR. Uh they did 30 minutes of manual CPR. And I'm you know, I woke up and I'm like, "Hey, how'd it go?" "Oh, wait, I'm on a breathing machine. I couldn't actually ask that. Those are the thoughts I had, but uh, they were like, yeah, you almost died. It was horrible. My my parents, you know, they were just kind of white as ghosts. Yeah. They said basically at this point, the only option is for you to receive, you to be listed for a heart transplant. Not a valve replacement, not open heart surgery, but your old heart cut out, a new heart put in mm. from, from a human donor. I instantly said, well, let's... Let's do it. 
I had been told in 1994 when I first became ill with cardiomyopathy that I would be a candidate for a heart transplant at some point, to which I said, no, absolutely not. So here we are in 2004, yeah. and I readily say, yes, New Mexico doesn't do heart transplants. So they say, well, these are your options. You can go to Phoenix, Tucson, Denver, San Diego, L.A. They gave me some choices. Those were all in the region fairly as low risk as possible to get to these centers. You you have to. um, So I said, well, who's the best in the world? They said, this is 2004, mind you. 2004, they said UCLA. They have the best track record. They do the most. They average about 100 a year. So I said, well, that's where I want to go. I don't exactly get a redo with this. So we had all kinds of health insurance glitches and hangups, you can imagine. Yeah. Because they know this is going to be really expensive. <laughs> and we finally got everything coordinated and UCLA called and said, we've got a bed open. We can hold it for five hours. But believe me, you're not the only person dying. If you can be here in five hours, the bed is yours. From which you will be evaluated for a heart transplant. If you qualify, then you'll be listed. Once you're listed, you may or may not receive a heart in time to save your life. There's no guarantees. There's no guarantees for anything, especially not this. So we made a lot of phone calls and managed to line up a emergency medical flight from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Los Angeles. And there's a whole big story just in that, but I'm going to skip over it. I get on the plane. They said you can take one person and they can only have a small carry on bag. So of course mom goes. Sure. With her, with like a large purse. That's how my mom moved to LA. (laughs) (laughs) So I get to LA, it's 11 at night. I'm in the back of an ambulance. So basically, I don't know what the heck's going on. I'm look, looking at a ceiling the whole time. But I'm very I'm very aware of my surroundings, but I get to UCLA and I don't know, I had this vision of everyone saying, "Oh, well, here he is. Here's this young man that needs a new heart. Welcome. We're going to save your life." Instead, it was, "Wait, who's this? He's supposed to be here." Tonight, I don't have him on my chart. And I'm like, don't panic, don't panic, don't panic. Don't have an episode. Don't have an attack. Still got this defibrillator. Just just chill. So the nurse that happened to be working comes in and says, okay, what are you here for? Blah, 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 blah. I explain everything. Uh, it's like a Wednesday. And she said, well, your timing's good because every Friday our – Heart Transplant Review Committee meets to see who qualifies to be listed. Mm -hmm. So Thursday comes, and I'm interviewed by nine people that come into my hospital room one at a time. These are very renowned professionals, and they, they need to know if this person is capable of taking care of himself 
and this precious new organ yeah that could save someone else's life if you're not ready to handle it hmm. i passed and they listed me at a high priority status because i was considered at risk for a sudden cardiac death in the heart transplant priority world you can be listed as a 2 a 1 a 1a and then that's the highest and then i was listed at 1a e e for exception meaning basically the next heart that came through up on their radar that was a match a blood type yeah blood type and size height you can oversize a heart but you can't undersize so i'm 58 59 on a good day <laughs> common blood type I was extremely fortunate, and I only had to wait four days. Um, some people wait years. Yeah. Four days later, they found a match. I was prepped for surgery. I'm being wheeled into surgery, and they open up the, the doors to the OR, and they're squeaking, horrible squeak. And I say, Dad, get someone to put some 3 and one oil on those doors. Because when I come out of this, I don't want to hear that noise. <laughs> I knew I was going to make it. Yeah. I knew I had more to, more to accomplish. While I was in the hospital before, I mean, there was two weeks of, of waiting to get listed for a heart. So mm -hmm. it's not like I would just there for it. Yeah, I had a lot of time. So for conversation's sake, we'll call that about 20 days. Yeah. In those 20 days, I wasn't allowed to leave a certain section of that hospital floor barely my room so friends had brought me watercolor pencils color pencils chalks paper all kinds of art materials that I could use from right in my hospital bed my room looked like an art gallery I had hours and hours and hours of nothing but time and my main goal was stay calm Stay cool. Don't get shocked. Don't go into uh, ventricular tachycardia. Just breathe. You're either going to live through this or you're going to die. Every night, you know, it's 4 a.m., you're in the hospital. All you hear is beeping and people moaning in pain. And you think, if I live through this, what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. And it, it really gets simple. If I live, what's my favorite thing is I'm, I'm an artist. Yeah. I paint. I draw. I make creations that make me happy. I make creations that make other people happy just by looking at them. Yeah. That's it. So. Did you keep the artwork that you drew while you were in the hospital? Absolutely. I know at some point I'll have a retrospective show. Yeah. And I have written most of a book telling the details of the story that yeah. I've just shared. Yeah. It's it's hard. It brings up a lot of not so great memories. Yeah. So it's not like I can just say my memoirs of the summer at the sure. lake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so your art really was your companion and your your solace through this in, incredible experience. Even through that in one specific piece if we have time. Yeah. I was tired of waiting for a heart and all the 
okay, well, blah, 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 this kind of uh, medical assistance is available, but you need to apply for it, and you're not going to qualify for this, and this will work. Finally, I just said, why am I, what, do, what do I want? Why well, I want a healthy heart, a perfect, healthy heart. So I looked at one of the charts in the room of an anatomically correct, beautiful, healthy human heart, and I drew this thing in exact detail. And I wrote on the bottom, I look forward to meeting you. Grant Searcy, and I put the date. I put it up on the wall above my bed, and the next day I got a new heart. You you make friends with other people waiting for hearts, because that's pretty much all that section of the hospital is filled up with those people. And so... <laughs> There's Ricky in room 211, and there's Jesus in room 225. They're drawing their version of an anatomically correct heart, and they're posting these by their beds. Mm. They're trying to manifest their hearts as well. Because there's never enough donors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now, now you're married? Yeah. And your wife's name? Mindy. 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 Yeah. yeah. And how long have y'all been married? Ten years. Uh-huh. Back to New Mexico. Yeah. I'm, I've got this bad heart. This is pre-transplant. I'm doing everything I can to maximize the health that I have. I'm going to yoga class. Mindy is one of the yoga teachers. I came to class a lot. <laughs> oh, I bet you did. <laughs> Front row, early, last yeah. one to leave. Yeah. You know, but she wouldn't date a student. She's a professional. And so I had to quit yoga class and then, then she'd consider dating me. Yeah. So we had our first official date lined up and I stood her up and she left me this voicemail and she said, you know, you don't seem like the type of guy that would stand me up, but when you get your beep together, call me. I was on a helicopter that very night bound for Albuquerque later to receive a new heart. So I asked my stepdad, Carl, in L.A. at the time, I said, Carl, will you call Mindy and just say, you know, tell her what's what's going on? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I really like this person, and uh, I can see us having a future together, but if she, if no one calls her right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Grant, folks that uh, are listening to your incredible story that may be experiencing difficult times, health-related or or whatever life circumstance may be troubling them, what kind of message do you give them? Because it's a wonderful story that you bring. Thank you, Ralph. And I'm really glad you asked that because my story, because I I can relate to people that not that they might not have found anyone that they can relate to, everything's a choice. You can easily choose to wallow in the misery. Life is not fair. Yeah. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do drugs. I didn't eat a bunch of unhealthy food. I just got sick. Yeah. Right when I was about to enter manhood. And just make you, you every day you get to make a choice. There's yeah. always something you can do. And you have a choice to focus on the positive or the negative. You focus on the positive long enough. And you can get through anything. Yeah. Wow. 
Grant Searcy tells a story in his art, and uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining us here. Folks, go go check out the Quinlan Art Center. Check out Grant's uh, exhibition there. Check out his place up in Dahlonega. Check out his website and uh, some wonderful, wonderful artwork there. And Grant, thank you so much for being here and sharing this story. It's, it's, a, it's an important one, and it's moved me and uh, I'm sure our listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's it's great to have the opportunity to tell it. Yeah. Well, folks, that's our show for this evening, and what a moving show it's been. And again, thank you to Grant Searcy for sharing your art and your story with all of us. I hope you have a great week ahead. And remember, every life is a song worth singing. I'll see you next week right here on the Chattahoochee Folk Hour.